Good morning. I'd like to invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll be in chapter 5 today of Ecclesiastes. And while you're turning there, I just want to encourage you to uh, consider serving in the church. Uh, What a blessing it is to serve one another as the body of Christ. We, church is not simply a thing that we go to. Uh, It's not a, a building that we enter it's not, a, it's not even just a gathering that we do once a week. The church is the body of Christ. It's made up of people. It's made up of God's people. And God has meant for us to live in community and to serve one another. So I just want to encourage you to take, the, take advantage of the opportunities that we have this summer to serve in the local church. And one in particular is VBS, Vacation Bible School. It's one of the larger outreaches that we do uh, to the community every year. And it's really important. It's, uh, we, we have this opportunity to disciple young people and to evangelize young people, both at the same time. Our young people, and then young people who are out in the community. And then their parents. We don't do it just for their parents, but we, we have an opportunity also to disciple and evangelize parents through this. So if you are on the fence about serving in the church somehow, maybe, maybe this is a way. Maybe this is something you can inquire about. Um, But I want to encourage you, if you're not serving in the body of Christ, look for ways to serve. You know how to figure out your spiritual gift? I I don't think the quizzes are very helpful. You know the quizzes where you take and it's a personality thing. You kind of describe yourself the way that you wish you were. And and then you hope that that's going to be, you know, your spiritual gift's going to be clear. I think a better way is to serve in the local church. And your gift will shine. So that's my little encouragement to you before we read the text today. Um, be a part of this local church. All right, so our text today is Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. The word of God says this, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the works of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God, but God is the one you must fear. Let's pray. Father, as we draw near to listen I pray that our hearts would be attuned to what you have to say. I pray that our resistance to you and your word would melt. And I pray that we would stop playing games. That any who come here as just their thing that they do on Sunday mornings, that you, Father, by your grace, would grab a hold of their hearts. That you would help us to see that there's a way that we can do church that is vanity. There's a way that we could worship, as it were, that is vanity. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would break through on that. 
I pray that you would move in this place through your spirit. I pray that you would bring conviction where conviction, where, where, where I pray that you would convict people. I pray that you would also encourage and edify and give strength to those who are weak this morning and needy of your grace. Those who are aware of it, help, help those who, of us who aren't aware of it too. We all need your grace. I pray for your help. I pray that the sermon that is heard and listened to would be far better than the one that is preached by your spirit working through your word in the hearts of your people. Do your work here among us, Father. I pray when everything is said and done that we will not waste this morning. That your name might be exalted. That the gospel might be heralded, cherished and believed that Christ might be exalted in our hearts. And we thank you, Father, for the body of Christ. We thank you for the church. We thank you for the house of God. What a privilege, what, a, what an undeserved grace it is to be a part of that. In Jesus' name, amen. So far in the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, that's how the author describes himself, the preacher, it's Solomon, has told us a bunch of things to which we should not pay our highest attention. That's where he's gone so far. You've noticed that? Don't pay attention to this with your highest attention. Don't put your whole focus on this. He goes through a lot of different things. These are the things that people typically put their focus on and the preacher wants us to know that they are vanity. And keeping your eye and your heart on those things will amount to wasting your life. Riches are vanity, so don't focus your heart on riches. Pleasure is a breath, so don't put your eye ultimately on pleasure. Achievements, your work, your legacy, Keeping your heart fixed on pursuing those things is like trying to shepherd the wind. There are good gifts from God. They're not bad. So don't, don't misread Ecclesiastes. They're not bad. They're good gifts from God designed to be enjoyed as gifts, not pursued as gain. But we have this tendency. We have this tendency to focus our ultimate attention and our affection, our highest affection on what is not ultimate. So when I was in my 20s, I spent a summer working in Puerto Ayacucho, Venezuela, buying supplies and packing them up to be flown out in small aircraft to missionaries who were serving in the jungle. I lived in a city. It was, Puerto Ayacucho is a pretty good-sized city. Uh, I rode a bicycle to work every day. Okay, that's how I got to it. It was like a nine-to-five kind of job believe it or not, um, buying supplies and then putting them in airplanes, and then the airplanes would fly them out to the jungles. Um, I had to go through this one neighborhood to, from, from, from my apartment to where I was working. I had to ride my bike through this one particular uh, neighborhood where there was this guy who hated Americans. He lived there, and he was always outside. Um, he used the word gringo a lot, gringo. Uh, he hated Americans. So that guy and I had a tradition together. He would see me and then call for his dog, a vicious little mutt, and the dog would chase after me and try to bite me while I rode for my life as fast as I possibly could before he would nip at me and get me. Every morning, every evening, it was our ritual, our tradition. I came to dread my commute uh, to work. And I had no way around it. There was a bridge right after that. I had to go through this little 
neighborhood. Didn't like that guy a lot. Didn't like his dog for sure. I told a friend about it and he shared the perfect solution. He walked me through it. He had lived there for many years and he, he said, here's what you should do. You should slow down, almost let the dog get your heel. Just like time it right, right before he sinks in. Then you give him some encouragement. Just right in his mouth with the sole of your foot. Give him some encouragement, he'll stop. And that'll be it. The dog will respect you. He'll never chase you again. Just do it one time. That's all you have to do. So I, you know, went a couple more days riding for my life and finally decided, okay, I got to do this. I got to face my bully here. So um, built up my courage. And the next morning, the guy saw me, yelled, gringo, and then whistled for his dog. Dog comes out, you know, super happy, smiley, running after me, trying to eat my leg. I slowed down. I kept calm. My timing was good. I gave him just the right amount of encouragement in just the right place. He yelped. Um, I looked back, the Venezuelan guy dropped his jaw. He's like, couldn't believe that I did that. I'm looking back, I'm riding away victorious, getting a little higher in my bicycle, you know, just really happy with myself. Only I was so happy with myself and so triumphant that I had not noticed the truck that was in front of me had completely stopped. And I slammed into it really hard. Uh, So hard, in fact, that I'm on the ground, shaken up, pick up my bicycle, my front wheel is dented in. And I had to carry my bike away in shame, you know, with, and I look back and that Venezuelan is, he had this big belly and he's laying down on his lawn, laughing louder than should be legal. I mean, just howling in laughter. So there goes my triumph. Now, it was not bad for me to want to stop that dog. It was not bad for me to want to do that, right? It was not bad for me to end that. That was a good thing. I needed to do that. But focusing on that good thing, like it was the ultimate thing, kept me from seeing the ultimate thing. Do you see? Paying attention to the road was more ultimate in that moment. And that's what we do with everything. And what Ecclesiastes warns us against, putting our eyes fully on what is good, but not ultimate. Things like work, and achievement, and even pleasure. Pleasure's good. It's a gift from God. But we put our whole focus on that, on those things, and in doing so, we ignore what is ultimate, God and our relationship with him. And that's what brings us to chapter five, verses one through seven. The preacher in this passage takes a break in chapter five from all the things we should not focus on, all the things we should not fear, to tell us someone we should fear. Someone that we should have our eyes and our hearts on. There are basically two lessons in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you boil it all down, as I've studied Ecclesiastes this summer, I've read many books on it. I think there are two lessons in this book. And if you boil them down, they're very simple, but so helpful, so helpful. And perhaps more important than anything else in all of the world. The first lesson relates to all the things you should not fear. The good things that are not ultimate. And the second lesson is the one person you should fear. The one who is ultimate. Or to put another way, to do life well, here are all the things, the preacher says, that you should not set your heart on. All the things and pursuits that should not ultimately govern your life. And here's the one person you must set your heart on, the one person who must govern your life, the one person you must believe in, the one person you must fear. That's it. 
That's the book of Ecclesiastes. And sadly, many of us will not listen. Will not listen to those two lessons. Take them to heart. We will, we will not listen. And you know what's going to happen? We will get life exactly backwards. Focusing on all the things that are not ultimate and ignoring the one who is ultimate. Are you following me? You think that sounds too strong? I don't. And that's the reason we're walking through Ecclesiastes this summer is to prevent that tragedy for you and for me. So today, the lesson before us is whom to fear. And the obvious answer, which you know already, you can see from the title of the sermon, the heading in your Bible, you can guess because this is church, the one that we must fear is God. The preacher in these verses supplies us with four things about you, four body parts that ought to be governed by God and five reasons why. And so maybe that's the best way to go through that. It's straight, forth, and clear. We'll just walk through those four things and then the five reasons. <clears throat> and I pray to God that, he will, that we will take this seriously this morning. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for me. All right, so the four things in our lives that must be governed by the fear of God. There are our feet, our eyes, our mouth, mouths, and our hearts. Those are all alluded to here in verses one through seven. The first one in verse one is our feet. Verse one says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. I love that he says when and not if. And I love it for a few different reasons. He, he's not talking primarily to people who would say that they're not God-fearing people or to put it in our terms. He's not talking to people who would say that they're not churchgoers. They're not Christians not people who would say that they're not Christians. The preacher is talking to people who would say that they are Christians. These verses are about when you go to church, not just whether you should go or not. seems like you're beyond that. You've, you're here, right? So when you go to church, the preacher has assumed that you already think you should go. So this is how you should go. You should guard your steps. I think that's really helpful because it sets the rest of this within the framework that I think can actually get to our hearts. You see, I know from experience that many base their confidence about their relationship with God, their standing with God. Many base their relationship with God on the fact that they go to church on Sundays or some Sundays or even two Sundays a year. But as we see clearly from this passage, there's actually a way to do that. There's a way to do church. There's a way to do Christianity that is vanity, that is not helpful, that's a wisp of smoke, that's a breath, that does not matter forever, that does not have gain. So note that this is all set in the context of when we go to the house of God, not if. And I take that to mean that this is a message that is relevant for me and relevant for you. Those of us who have gathered on this Sunday morning as a church, the preacher warns us to guard our steps. Our steps, which I think means the direction of our lives, must be governed. So lots of you run. I run too. Uh, I have a set path that I, I go through. I'm a creature of habit. Same path every, every time I run. Um, same one. I have to stay on that path. I got to guard my feet though, right? I got to guard the direction of my feet or I will be off the path and into high grass. And I think that's the meaning of guard your steps. Let the direction of your lives, let the direction of your lives be governed ultimately by the fear of God. Guard your steps. That's the first body part, your feet. 
The second body part that must be governed by the fear of God is our ears. And you can see that in verse one as well. To draw near to listen is better than the sacrifice of fools. To listen is more than just to hear something, right? I mean, I hear lots of things, but I don't listen to all I hear. Last night, as I was thinking about this, um, somebody in the house was watching a television show and it was just going, right? I was, I was sitting there reading something and she was watching a TV show, uh, this child, and uh, all of a sudden my wife came in and said, hey, you should, you should turn that channel. That's probably not the greatest thing to watch. And I was sitting like with an earshot and I had no idea because I wasn't really listening. And that's how it goes. We don't always listen to what we hear. Listening, I think, means hearing the truth in a way that hits the mind and the heart. Listening means being affected, even shaped. Listening means being shaped by what we hear. We are encouraged to draw near to listen when we come to the house of God. And I'm just going to ask you guys, is that how it is for you in church? Say when the sermon is being preached or when we sing together or when we encourage one another before and after the service? Is it hearing for you or is it listening? We draw near to listen to God speak. We draw near to listen to the way that he speaks, which is the word of God. One of the reasons I believe that the preaching of God's word is so vital in the life of the church and the gathering of the church is so that we might draw near to listen. It's so that our lives and our loves and our ambitions might be shaped by God's word. I hope that we as a church never lose that focus, that focus on God's word. For so many churches and so many Christians have lost that. They don't come near to listen to God. Church can be about a thousand other things. I pray it will always be about listening for us. I pray that we will always draw near to listen to God's word and to God's people. So our ears, the next body part that needs to be governed is our mouth. Verse two says, be not rash with your mouth and let, the words, let your words be few. And verse five says, it's better that you not vow than you vow and not follow through. And verse six says, let not your mouth lead you into sin. And verse seven says, when dreams increase and words grow, there is vanity. So our mouth needs to be governed by the fear of God. And he seems to be addressing the empty vows that we make to God. Now, let me ask you, okay? Stay with me here. Do we do that? Do we make empty vows? Is that even something we do? I want to press in here because I, we need to see the relevance you know, we just had a wonderful time of worship together. We sang wonderful songs together. My heart was edified as we worshiped the Lord. And you know what we did? We used our mouths to do that, right? We used our mouths to sing. We used our mouths to pray. I'm using my mouth right now to preach. And before the service, we used our mouths to welcome and encourage one another, to say, to greet one another. And after the service, we'll do the same. A lot of mouths being used during the service. So here's a question for you. And this is a question that's meant to try to press in to perhaps the way that we make empty vows. Uh, a way anyway. Here it is. Is the way that your mouth speaks today in the context of this church right now, like the way that my mouth is speaking, the way that your mouth has spoken this morning, the way that you sang is it consistent with how it speaks the rest of your week? Say at home with your children and your spouse or at work with your coworkers or at the backyard barbecue with your buddies. 
Is it the same? Is it consistent? Or is this the time when your mouth is blessing and those other contexts are the time when your mouth is cursing? Or gossiping? Or maybe this is the time when your mouth is praising and in those contexts your your mouth is grumbling. Doesn't that inconsistency suggest an emptiness about our speech now? Does it? God is not impressed by our pious words. God is not impressed by our singing if it is empty in real life. We see the refrain repeated in the Bible. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. When our lips honor God without our hearts drawing near to him, we are making empty vows. And that's what the preacher is warning us against here. It's better not to sing. It's better not to sing than to sing and not mean it or not care. It is better not to speak than to make empty vows. And that leads us into the fourth body part that must be governed by the fear of God, our hearts. Verse two makes the connection explicit between our hearts and our mouths. It says, do not let your heart be hasty to utter words before God. I read somewhere this week, but I forgot where. I tried to go back and find it so I could cite the author, but it's not from me, it's from somebody else. But an author wrote, every time a mouth opens, a heart can be seen. And I think that's true. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our mouths reveal our hearts. So if you wish to govern your mouth, if you wish to govern your mouth, you must govern your heart. God is interested in sincerity, not mere words. He wants our hearts, not just our words. All right, so guard your steps. Draw near to listen. Do not be rash with your mouth. Do not let your heart be hasty. Those are the imperatives of this passage. And they all, they all lead to the final statement in verse four. God is the one that you must fear. The sacrifice of a fool. I'm sorry, I lost my place here. Mixed in with all of these commands are reasons, at least five of them, to fear God. So let's spend a few moments walking through those and then I'll bring it all together. I hope for your encouragement. So reason number one, the first reason, which you can see in verse one, why we should guard our mouths and feet and hearts is that there is a sacrifice of fools. There is a way to go about worship and a way to do church that is a full sacrifice or fool's worship. So when I was in elementary school, there was this rotten kid who, um, who spray painted a bunch of rocks with gold paint. Uh, I was, I don't know, in first grade and he sprayed, they looked just like gold nuggets to this little first grader who just got a new watch for his birthday. And he's showing me these rocks, these nuggets. He says he found them in his yard. It's Florida, but I, you know, maybe. And they look like gold to me. I never touched gold, maybe a little bit of gold, but not gold nuggets. You know, I didn't know how heavy they were and all of that. But So of course it made sense to trade him my nice new watch for those gold nuggets. And I did. And I was so proud of myself. I was walking home ready to tell everybody that what a sucker this guy was to trade me these gold nuggets for my watch. And I ran into my very shrewd, very blunt uncle uh, on the way. And I told him about it. I'm like, hey, Uncle Tom, listen, I, I, I did this trade today for these gold nuggets. And he just says, he's an old country boy. He says, show me them nuggets, boy. And so I pulled them out, gave them to him. He looks at him, laughs, 
um, hands him back, mutters as he leaves, there's a reason why fool's gold is called fool's gold. And, and, and he said, good trade as he left. And I just knew then that I had done something wrong. A sacrifice of a fool is fool's worship. So it might look like worship on the outside, but that's mere spray paint. A fool himself might think that it's worship. That's what it says here. He might not know that it's evil. The look is there, but if the heart is absent, it's worthless and it is the sacrifice of fools. And how convicting that ought to be for us. Is my worship fool's worship? Is my sacrifice the sacrifice of fools? The second reason to fear God with sincerity is at the end of verse two. It's because God is in heaven and you are on earth. God is in heaven. How silly it is that we, from our little earthly vantage point, refuse to fear the God of heaven, refuse to listen to the God of heaven. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is sovereign over all things. He is God in heaven and you are on earth. How could you not fear God? How could you not fear God? Young people, listen to me. How proud is it for us to act like God has no relevance in our life? How proud? What foolishness. The third reason is because God takes no pleasure in fools. That's what he says in verse four. If what you offer God is fool's worship, you should beware for God takes no pleasure in either your worship or in you as per verse four. God takes no pleasure in fools. What a warning. I mean, I don't know about you, but I want to be under the smile of God. I want to be in God's pleasure. But if our worship is empty, then we need to consider the warning of verse four. God takes no pleasure in fools. And the next reason flows out from that. Look with me at verse six, the end of verse six. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? We desire God's pleasure or we should desire it. But the preacher warns us that if we, if we are fake and need to be, then we need to be concerned with his anger. God gets angry. God destroys And so we must fear God. Sin has consequences. Idolatry has consequences. Loving yourself more than anything has consequences. Loving this world leads somewhere. It leads ultimately to the anger and to the wrath of God. You should fear God. I should fear God. All right, reason number five, last reason. It goes right to the main idea of this passage. And I believe it goes right to the heart of the book of Ecclesiastes. Verse seven says, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. He uses the word vanity again, but God is the one you must fear. Verbose, but empty worship is vanity. Your piety, if that's all it is, is a mere wisp of smoke. It's a breath. That's the fifth reason why you should fear God. There is a way to do Christianity that's vanity. There's a way to do church that is a wisp of smoke that is empty. So put it all together. Fear God by guarding your steps, by drawing near to listen, by guarding your mouth, by guarding your heart. And do that because there is a sacrifice of fools and because God is in heaven and you are on earth and because God takes no pleasure in fools and because God gets angry and destroys and because empty worship is vanity. And you know what you get when you put it all together? There is no gain by fake worship. No gain. 
There's no benefit. You gain nothing by playing church. Oh, how different that is from genuine worship, right? There is value. Real worship is not vain. You know what you get when, with real worship? You get God. You get joy in him forever. You get Jesus. In the Gospel of John, chapter 4, Jesus gives us a great insight into true worship. You might recall this story. It's a famous story. We've talked about it a lot here. Jesus met a Samaritan woman at a well, and they had a conversation. And Jesus went right after her heart. It's a fascinating exchange. You should go read the whole thing in, in John 4 today. She was doing her best to evade him, but she couldn't evade God. <laughs> At a critical juncture in that conversation, after Jesus had pointed out her desperate need of him and her brokenness, she asked Jesus a question, and her question was about worship. It's a fascinating exchange. Her, her question was mainly one about the proper venue for worship. So she had this question, theological question, about form. Where should we worship? You see, the Samaritans who rejected much of the scriptures disagreed with the Jews about Jerusalem being the proper place of worship. So Jesus gives this woman this amazing answer. Let's read it together here. This is from John 4, 21 through, 20, 21 through 24. He said, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I want to note two things about that amazing answer as it relates to Ecclesiastes 5. First, note that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. True worship will never be empty. Never. True worship is never empty. It's never void of the heart. It's never outward, just only. So it's not about a place. It's not about a form. It's not about the outwardness of it all. It's not about the quality of our music. It's not about the atmosphere that we create. Worship is, about, is in the spirit and in truth. Empty worship is vanity. It could be very high quality vanity, by the way. It could be awesome vanity, but still vanity. True worship is in spirit and in truth. Second, note that the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is seeking true worshipers. You know what's really cool about that? Jesus is the very hands and feet of the Father seeking true worshipers. That's what the cross is all about. As Jesus was talking to this woman, he was headed to the cross where he would die for the sins of his people and satisfy God's anger against them forever. He would rise again, ensuring new life to all who would trust in Jesus Christ alone. In Christ. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, God is seeking to make true worshipers out of us. Not, not vain worshipers, not empty worshipers, but true worshipers out of us. It is the gospel, friends, that makes our worship true worship and not vanity. It is Christ and his work alone that makes our worship genuine. And it is through him that we can obey and take heed to the warning of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. 
You know the main idea of Ecclesiastes? I'm right in the middle of this series, but I'll just give it all away. The main idea of Ecclesiastes is that this world and all it has to offer and your short life and all you do here is a mere breath. It's here today and gone tomorrow. Yet in the midst midst of that, there is Jesus and Jesus is true and everlasting life and you can have joy in him forever. That's not a mere breath. That's not vanity. That's forever. I think what Ecclesiastes is meant to do, passages like Ephesians, Ecclesiastes 5, it is meant to stoke our hope in Christ. So do not fear this world. Do not set your eyes and your hearts and your affection on things that are good but not ultimate. This world is not what should govern your heart. This world should not govern your affections. God is the one we must fear. Set your heart on God through Christ. Look to the cross by faith. Do not look to riches or pleasure or achievements or to your legacy or to your motions of Christianity. God, God is the one you must fear. So maybe some questions, some practical questions to ponder as we seek to listen to God's word this morning. Friend, what governs your feet? What governs the direction of your life? What is it that you really listen to? What has your ear? Are you drawing near to listen to God and his word? Or do you merely hear it like a television show in the background of your life that has no sway on you at all? What about your mouth? Is your worship genuine? Or is it empty? Is it vanity? Or is it everlasting life? God in Christ is seeking to make a true worshiper out of you. May we turn with joy and sincerity to Christ this morning. May we fear him. We must fear him. And in that, we will find the satisfaction we've been looking for in all those other places. A satisfaction that lasts not a mere lifetime, but forever and ever. We must fear God. God is the one we must fear. Oh Lord, I pray that this message would not fall on our deaf ears, but that you would open those ears to hear and our eyes to see the glory of Christ. I pray that we would turn with faith to Christ this morning. And I pray, Lord, that if church is a game to us, if it's something we just do, like cultural Christianity, like because every good Nebraskan does this, Oh Lord, would you penetrate today our hearts with your grace and your mercy in Christ. And may we throw off the game and turn to Christ for real, by faith, and enjoy you forever. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.